Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. A great poet once wrote the lines, work sucks, I know. And today's author is backing that up with her own personal story. Carrie Sun's memoir, Private Equity, is about her time in the trenches of high finance. And in this interview with here and now Scott Tong, yeah, they get to talking about the nitty gritty of Wall Street, the high pressure stakes and all that. But they get to something more universal and really challenging how we see our self-worth in our jobs and what we do for money. Because maybe it's not work itself that inherently sucks, but our personal relationship to it. That's after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. With the year halfway over, therapy can help you take stock of your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. If you're thinking about trying therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Visit BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Crown, publisher of The Demon of Unrest, a saga of hubris, heartbreak, and heroism at the dawn of the Civil War by Eric Larson. The Demon of Unrest is available wherever books and audiobooks are sold. So what happens when your dream job begins to haunt you, begins to chew away at you, first physically and then emotionally, and you kind of don't realize it for a while? Well, let's ask our next guest. Carrie Sun, MIT brainiac, takes a job as a personal assistant to a Wall Street titan, and before long, she finds herself sucked into the vortex of high finance. Luxury perks and elite living that, you know, like a big investment, becomes hard to unwind. Carrie Sun writes about this in her memoir, Private Equity, and she joins us now from the NPR studio in New York. Carrie, good to have you. Great to be here. Before you join this rock star hedge fund, as you describe it, and you use a pseudonym for the companies and individuals in the book, you had worked at the investment company Fidelity, but you make clear this hedge fund is no fidelity. Reading it kind of reminded me of the New York fashion world depiction in The Devil Wears Prada. So give us an idea of what a day looked like in the job, in the stress that it brought upon you. I described this workplace being like a think tank inside a newsroom. And so you had to both be able to switch into a very deep, insightful, analytical thinking, but also be prepared to change at any time if, you know, the market moved in a big way or you were asked to do something at the very last minute and completely change your plans. And so it was just extremely hard to be able to really get a handle on having a routine day after day where you mm. can kind of mm-hmm. plan mm-hmm. your life. Yeah. Well, and you make clear that this job, it takes over not only your days, but your nights. You have this great phrase, you had urgency fatigue. It was that kind of job wearing you down. But at the start, you say you loved it. You write that your boss made you a believer in good billionaires. What does that mean? I thought being good was someone who believed in ethics and morality and also wanted to behave in that way and really also cared about Not just something being legal and veering away from illegality, but also just Mm. being a good person. And certainly my boss really believed in those things. And I could see him trying to enact those principles and values. And Mm -hmm. I think my book is ultimately 
a narrative critique of how sometimes the best intentions, good intentions, don't always end up being the reality. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, your boss, in, in many instances, to me, I mean, comes across very well, trying to give you space. I mean, to do all these things, clearly he demands you to do, but maybe this, I don't know, more of an indictment of the system. Physically, here's a moment that I want to ask you about. You're on the treadmill, and you're answering an email or a text, uh, you know, that has to be answered, and you wipe out. Yeah. I try to do two things at the same time. I ran, and I answered the text message. That did not go well. I fell on a treadmill. Quilts of skin were missing from my knees. And the first yeah, thing I say, yeah. other people witnessed this fall, and I said, I am totally fine. I, That's the instinct, right? Exactly. And I think that <laughs> instinct, so many of us have that. And... I also think about that instant a lot. I think it's kind of a metaphor and a sign from elsewhere that maybe I should slow down. Maybe I Mm. don't need to respond to work instantly. And also someone was telling me, maybe you should think about getting off the treadmill. And instead, Mm. as soon as my knees healed, I got right back on the treadmill. Yeah. You know, this book is very personal. Boy, you share a lot in this book. You write about how... You start binge eating, about how you gain, you write 30 pounds, and yes. you know you try to make sense of it. Uh, you also write about your background of, you know, my word, of your being a kind of a champion pleaser, uh, yes. you know, and connected to your upbringing as the daughter of Chinese immigrants. And it starts to rhyme with my own family story. You know, you write about your parents. They endured the Cultural Revolution, you know, the Wunga in China, where, you know, anyone impure gets sent down to the countryside for, quote, re-education. Eventually, they make it to the U.S. to do jobs way below their academic qualifications. And the effect on you, and this is another phrase I love, is that they provide you in America with opportunities, but not freedom. In a way, even as you're working in this high-powered Wall Street jobs Your parents are kind of your bosses still, yeah? Yes. They provided me with opportunities, but not freedom, because I did not feel free to not take the maximum best opportunities I was given. It definitely meant economically, but it also meant, you know, in status, in prestige. And the reason I chose to write about the work story and the personal story together is because ultimately I think they are— in many ways, one in the same story. It is about social relations in systems of domination and care. Yeah. You have a lot of observations of the system you were in, of course, the financial system. And at some parts, as you look back, you're merciless in your analysis of this hedge fund. I'm going to read a, a little passage where you write, quote, a large part of me was motivated to believe the lie, the myth that a big crossover fund could care about something else, something greater, like morality or being a net positive to society, end quote. But hold on, if I can just kind of take that on for a second, you know the argument. You've been in it a lot that this is a system that delivers, as the argument goes, money to the best ideas. That could, who knows, you know, bring zero carbon electricity, can help cure cancer someday, deliver clean water to the global south. I mean, part of that about the financial system is true, isn't it? Yes. Where self-interest aligns with change for the greater good, I think finance as an industry, but also the verb finance to provide the finances to support some goal or project or dream, I think it's incredible. But I think Hmm. sometimes when those motives come up against 
actual material needs and decisions to treat people a certain way and when the humanity of workers and employees here are not taken into account, I think that's when the profit motive and the inhumanity of this way of doing business can really be destructive, this fundamental, profound power imbalance between owners and workers. I want to ask briefly about uh, one tool you use as you write this book, and that is you mine your old messages, your GChat messages, your AOL instant messages. So it kind of dates <laughs> when all this happens. But I'm curious, as you went over your old messages, your old digital footprints, was it illuminating to kind of get back to what was happening and now you're on the other side of that? It was incredibly difficult. But I think at that time I had a specific reaction and I could understand the reaction now as being a way for me to just survive. And so, for example, when mm. my peers at the firm refused to do some work that I was told should be their work, I responded immediately and said, you know, this is all fine. I'm going to take it on myself. I'm going to do all the work myself. What I'm focusing on now and I think in the book is not so much how I was necessarily wrong in my thinking, but how all the working culture and my past and my present, mm. the environments contributed to me putting all the blame of not being able to do everything on me. And I just took so much responsibility that I don't think any worker should necessarily take on. Yeah. With the voice of your mom in your head as you're right, you know, yes. she tells you on more than one occasion to tinghua, right? yes. be a good listener, be a good follower, uh, yes. follow the directions you're given. And, uh, and the voice is in my head too. I'm so thankful you picked up on that tinghua because in Chinese culture, it is such a, I wanted to be someone who tinghua, you know, tinghua means listen words. My mom wants mm -hmm. me to listen to her words be obedient, you know, and so yeah, to yeah. kind of let her be the boss, as it were. Um, and in a Confucian society, it's not a suggestion. Yes, it's a exactly. Exactly. You write about how you did that day after day. Uh, my last question for you is the title. Private Equity is a company that's not owned by the public, as it were, you know, traded in a public market, but is privately owned. What does it mean to you? I want to reclaim the term private equity. I mean private in the sense of the personal and the self that cannot be consumed by others publicly. And by equity, mm. I mean equity in the sense of justice, fairness, and what is equitable. In my book, I am asking the question, like, what is my investment in myself? What is my private equity in the future that I'm trying to build for myself? And that is what I hope to explore and discover both in this book, and these are topics that are of perennial interest to me. Yeah. The book is, as we talked about, is called Private Equity, a memoir, and the author is Carrie Sun. Carrie, thanks for taking the time. Very good read. Thank you so much for having me. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Sony Pictures Classics presenting Run Lola Run. The high-octane cinematic sensation has returned to theaters in magnificent 4K. 
With 20 minutes to save her boyfriend's life, Lola runs through the streets of Berlin to reach him and somehow pick up 100,000 marks along the way. As the clock ticks down, the tiniest choices become life-altering, and the fine line between fate and fortune begins to blur. Get tickets now at runlolarunfilm.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu.